Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to HIV Hope and Charity, a podcast series brought to you by TVPS, a charity that's been supporting people affected by HIV since 1985. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jess and we work for TVPS and our aim is to get as many people as possible HIV educated. If you like the podcast, please rate, subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's good to see you, Sarah. Hello. It is very good to see you. How are you? I am getting there, feeling a little better for everybody that doesn't know that I haven't told because I've told everyone that I have had covid and still in testing positive, but I'm nearing the end of it. But if I sound a bit bunged up or you hear some sniffles, as you know, that is why. Oh, poor you. I know. Rubbish. Rubbish times. But anyway, enough about my COVIDness. Tell me what we're doing today. Okay. So we, well, we're looking at someone very interesting this week. I think they're all interesting. More interesting than they are all interesting, actually. That's probably not the best way to start. Do you know, each podcast episode, I think this is going to be the one. That is broadcasting excellence. And within the first two minutes, it's always like, no, this isn't the one, is it? It's already ruined. Yes. Well, it's only up from here, as we always say. Yes, but every week, (laughs) it can only get better. So look, very interesting, as interesting, if not more than everyone else we featured. And as talented or even more talented than everyone we've ever featured. I like these caveats that you're having to put in now. He, given you a clue already, see, I'm so bad at the build-up, aren't I? I'm not sure if we can do him justice. He is really talented. If you haven't heard of this person, and some people won't, maybe, could be doing everyone a massive disservice, you're definitely going to know their work. This week, we are featuring an American artist whose pop art emerged from the New York City graffiti subculture of the 80s, my favourite era, and his name was Keith Herring. I really like his work. He's so talented. He is. And I think you're going to really love him as a person as well. Oh, I like it when we start in a positive way. You're not saying, oh, I'm so angry. I'm going to be so mad throughout this. You're like, no, he's brilliant. You're going to love him. Okay, awesome. I know very little about him. Obviously, I know that 
He's done so he did well, he did some campaigns around HIV awareness and that he was positive himself. But aside from that and knowing what his work looks like, I really don't know a lot. No, well, I didn't either. I mean, his artwork, once you see it, you're like, oh, yes, of course. And it's everywhere. So his images on T-shirts, I mean, they're sold by loads of companies like Gap, Superdry, ASOS. It's just all over the place. I didn't realise till I started looking into it that everybody uses his images. Like you were saying, they're really striking. You'd know them if you saw them, even if you feel you don't know who he is. Yeah. And obviously we'll share some alongside the social media with the podcast, as always. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his artwork, it doesn't it doesn't transfer well to a podcast, does it? But I thought, shall I describe them? Oh <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Like, how would I begin to describe this? It's not. Definitely not. Okay, back to the beginning, as we always do. He was born in 1958 in Reading, Pennsylvania. I don't know if they pronounce it the same as Reading in the UK. Is Pennsylvania uh, in New England? No. Oh. <laughs> Pennsylvania, oh, here we go. Is it not? No, it's definitely in Pennsylvania. Stop doing this. <laughs> okay. I, no, it, no, I didn't know Pennsylvania was in New England, is what I was saying. Isn't Pennsylvania a state? Oh, American listeners, and we know we've got some. I am so sorry for our lack of geography knowledge. Okay, right, I've looked it up. So it is Pennsylvania, officially the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, is a US state spanning the Mid-Atlantic, Northeastern and Appalachian, I hope I've said that right, regions of the United States. The capital is Harrisburg. I'm assuming that means it is not in New England. The only reason I asked that is because obviously you said Reading. I wonder if they say it the same. And I thought well, that's what I was going to say. So look, we are based, well, some of our podcast pod. <laughs> it's just already falling apart every week. <laughs> I know. Some of our podcast listeners will know. Reading in the UK is one of the towns we cover on our patch. I don't know if they pronounce it Reading or Reading in America. But it doesn't matter because he wasn't there long. He moved to Cutstown, which is also in Pennsylvania. Not New England, just to... No, nothing to do with New England at all. But Cutstown is in Berks or Berks County in Pennsylvania. We're based in Berkshire or Berks for short. We have a very deep affiliation with Keith Haring already. This is getting so confusing. Reading, reading, Berks, Berks. Ooh, I like it. Yeah, we're in Berkshire, but it's spelt Berkshire, isn't it? Yeah. And a Burke in English is a silly person. That's probably why we don't like it being called Berkshire. No, it's definitely Berkshire. Anyway, (laughs) he's persevered and is still listening. Well done. So we're looking at Keith Haring. (laughs) We've established he's from Pennsylvania. And he he learnt his cartoon skills. That's what he's kind of known for, graffiti cartoon style, from his dad. His dad was an amateur cartoonist. And he was also influenced by Walt Disney, of course, because Walt Disney was massive in the 50s and 60s with cartoons. So that's where he's kind of coming from. He went to the Ivy School of Professional Art in Pittsburgh. Don't you dare try and tell me where that is. Which is, oh, don't you even Google it. Which is a commercial art school. But he dropped out because he realised commercial art not for him at all. Later that year, he moved to New York and enrolled in the School of Visual Arts. And it's a very alternative art community there. So people 
who were there, who were studying there, they didn't show their work in galleries or museums. They're showing their work on subways and in clubs. And he met a huge variety of different artists, so musicians, performance artists, graffiti artists. And he began to organise and show his own work in exhibitions at somewhere called Club 57, which I'd never heard of. But when you look into it, it's quite a famous nightclub in New York. It's not there now, but it was. And it used to have people hanging out there like Madonna, Cindy Lauper, B-52s, RuPaul. Oh, OK. I've never heard of Club 57. Obviously, I've heard of Studio 54. I wonder if there's any connection there. I don't know. But it was just a really kind of cool underground club at the time. And we're talking sort of late 70s, on the cusp, cusp, one of my favourite words in the world, on the cusp of the 80s. Your favourite decade in the world. Yes, Exactly. It's all coming together, isn't it? We were meant to feature him on our podcast. Just sorry we haven't really done him justice so far by getting sidetracked. Mainly my fault, though. I, I'd like, I'm going to take that responsibility. All you've done is try to tell me about Keith Haring. And I feel like we're dueling because at every turn, I seem to just be thwarting your efforts. This is true. I may have to try and do a solo podcast. I think it's the only way. It's like my inner monologue gets in the way and it just pours straight out of my mouth. Anything I'm thinking, just firing at you. (laughs) I'll work on that. Right, Club 57. Interesting. An underground club. And it was run by someone called Anne Magnuson, who is also, she's a performer. She sang in bands and appeared in films. And she described the club as having a punk do-it-yourself aesthetic, which I think probably gives a kind of, illustrates what sort of vibe it was. They had lots of events there. So they had events like erotic dayglow art shows. Yeah. That actually sounds really fun. I think so too, definitely. They used to have um, lots of theme parties. Again, fun. They used to have something that they called uh, putt-putt reggae night. They played miniature golf and they played it on a course made of refrigerator boxes designed to resemble a Jamaican shantytown. That sounds amazing. Yeah, like really cool, kind of lots of different things going on. They also had a model world of glue night, which they described or she described as New York's hippest built airplane and monster models. They burnt them and then sniffed the epoxy. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I mean, well, that's a good time, isn't it, for some people? I could get on board with the first three. I think, yeah, that sounds like quite a fun place. But then the fourth one, you're like, oh, no. I feel like if you were going to invite me to something where we built a model plane, burnt it and then sniffed the glue, I might I might decline that. It's not a, yeah. It's not Erotic, glow in the dark party, yes. Glue sniffing models, no. No. Well, there you go. So the first three are ideas for our drop-in. Put it out there. So fourth, just in the maybe pile. Well, (laughs) I'm all for people building models. That's quite a fun thing to do. I don't want them burnt and I don't want them to sniff the glue. No, agreed, agreed. I think there's a whole nightmare risk assessment to be done around that that I just am not going to do. Yeah, that would be a big document. But, you know, it sounds like quite a fun place to hang out. And it was very alternative, very against the mainstream. So at the time, because it always helps me to put it into context if I know kind of what mainstream music and mainstream TV was at the time. So it was things like ABBA, Bee Gees, Blondie, The Carpenters, Jackson 5, quite wholesome, really. Blondie, no, a bit more cutting edge, but the rest is quite wholesome, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And then the TV programmes that were big at the time were things like The Waltons, 
Bonanza, Charlie's Angels, Mork and Mindy. Oh, I remember Mork and Mindy, yeah. Well, obviously not from the first time around, from the reruns on Channel 4. I think most of them have been reruns. Starsky and Hutch, I remember that. Uh, Kojak, Columbo. When I was young, there was a cat down our street and they called it Kojak, the kids, and I just didn't understand what that was from until I was much older. And then I was like, this really cute little black cat called Kojak. And when I actually saw Kojak, I was like, what? (laughs) Very confusing. Oh. Isn't he like an old bald man? Yeah, he didn't have any hair. Yeah, and they called their cat Kojak. I mean, I love it, but... Maybe in an ironic way. Quite possibly. I used to love Bonanza. What is Bonanza? It's like a Western type thing. Lots of horses. I just remember lots of horses galloping around. And that guy was in it who was in Stairway to Heaven. No, Stairway to Heaven's song. <laughs> just now, this is all you. You're just ruining this yourself. I, I'm not involved in this. <laughs> it's down a weird rabbit hole. <laughs> what was his name? Michael somebody. From what was he in Bonanza? Bonanza. He was really famous. I'm going to Google it for you. Right. Bonanza. Again, this is excellent podcast listening. Right. Bonanza. Here we go. Ben Cartwright. Oh, that's no. who the people are. Michael Landon. Yes. Okay. Okay. Let's have a look. I don't recognise him. What? He was very famous. He's got a really kind face. He was in Bonanza riding around on horses. I don't really remember any storylines, but I know it was like a Western type thing. He's got a very kind face and wow, luscious hair. Yes. Very nice hair. Okay, learning something new. I'm literally looking up Kojak now. Look, (laughs) this is Kojak. (laughs) Yeah, nothing like a cat. It's a weird... A weird thing to do. Telly Savalas. Yes, I know that name. That is who played Kojak. Anyway. Yes. Okay. All right. Back to our lovely podcast. So Magnuson, like we said, she ran the club. The students from the School of Visual Arts made a huge contribution too. Obviously, they went to the club, but they also laid on performances and they used it uh, as the, the glue sniffing probably evidences as a bit of a playground. So there's another street artist called Kenny Scharf. He's famous as well. And he described Club 57 as like a big orgy family. Lots of drugs, lots of promiscuity. He said he'd go, he'd look around and he'd be like, oh my God, I've had sex with everyone in the room. But he says it was in the spirit of the time. So this is pre-HIV, pre-AIDS. Everyone was either living together or sleeping together. Yeah, it was a sexual revolution, wasn't it? Around <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And that was definitely happening at that club. So it closed, the club closed in the early 80s. So some of the artists' community moved on to larger venues as their kind of popularity grew. But at the same time, many were diagnosed with AIDS and were too poorly to go to clubs. And that's quite sad. That's quite a division in lifestyle as well, isn't it? It's not just that you don't fancy it anymore. You know, your life's literally at risk. Yes, absolutely. Um, Now, Keith, obviously, he went to the School of Visual Arts. He was a a regular... (laughs) My attention has just been caught by my cat who's across the road in my neighbor's garden having a boo anyway let's start again so back to keith so whilst he was at the school of visual arts and afterwards he was being influenced by all the other artists work uh he was kind of soaking it all up really and developing his own unique style and he started to create his art his own art on unused billboards in subway stations so the billboards are covered in matte black paper and he's using white chalk to do his illustrations. And he described the subway as like, like his office, a, a laboratory, he called it. And he just spent his days there just creating art in this really unique 
way. And the commuters, New York commuters, they got really used to seeing him there. They used to stop and watch him. They'd come and talk to him. He became like a familiar figure. Not everyone, obviously, was a fan of what he was doing. So the authorities considered his work to be vandalism. And he was arrested several times for defacing these billboards. But the police couldn't do much because his drawings were in chalk, so they could just be rubbed out. How much damage are you doing if I can chuck a bucket of water over it and it's gone? Yeah, exactly. But that kind of intrigued the public further. I think there was kind of a split as to whether he was defacing public property or just producing nice art that you can look at when you're doing your commute. But it created this intrigue, which he liked because it gave a wider platform for his work. And as his kind of fame grew, he started to raise awareness about HIV, having a massive impact on his own community. He started to exhibit publicly. First exhi- um, exhibition is 1981 and another one in 1982. Sorry, these are official ones. You don't mean sort of the subway chalk drawings. These are official exhibitions. Yes. So he's kind of getting his name out there. And from that, he started to become involved in kind of numerous public projects, really. So he was asked to design animations for a billboard in Times Square. He was designing sets and backdrops for theatres and clubs. Um, He designed watches for Swatch. Oh, do you remember Swatch? I I bought Ben a Swatch watch from eBay, like a vintage 80s. I love Swatch watches. Me too. I used to have one. I remember I got it for my birthday. It was the best present ever. What what did it look like? What what style? Oh gosh, it was like a bluey kind of purpley kind of almost like kind of not translucent. That's the wrong wrong word. What's I know what you mean though. Kind <laughs> Today of with words. Through. I'm going to go really basic, like coloured see through material. Like. Yeah, I just I thought I was so cool wearing it. He could have designed that. I, I feel like what he designed probably had his unique coding. <laughs> I think you're probably right. He's not doing a bluey greeny watch, is he? <laughs> that no one can quite describe. <laughs> and he also um, created murals worldwide. That's how well known he was becoming by them. So he's not just known in the States. Everybody wants to work with him, which is cool. Then in 1986, he opened his pop shop. So it was based in Soho, and that's where he sold T-shirts and toys and posters and magnets, all bearing his images. And the shot, very iconic, abstract black on a white mural. So, you know, that very kind of significant style that he had. And he wanted the shop to enable people to have greater access to his work at low cost. And this is why I love him. So the art world criticised him for this. But he was absolutely resolute. He wanted his work to be available to as many people as possible. And I think in the art world, if you're producing art and it's unique, it isn't accessible to everybody, is it? It's only accessible to those who can afford. He had the opposite stance. I love him for that. So I have to say that is the one thing I did know about him, that he wouldn't have it that doing this would devalue his brand, let's call it, or his artwork. I love that he was like, no, I'll, I'm the artist. I'll do what I like. I will make this accessible to everyone. Absolutely. Yes. But I can see why it would jar with other artists. But I think that, that what an amazing stance he had. He did have some support. He some support. He had a lot of support from his kind of friends and his fans. And also from his mentor. His mentor was Andy Warhol. Oh, OK, OK. I've actually got a fact for you about the two of them later. Excellent. I shall look forward to that. So he's working really hard. So he, between 1982 and 1989, he produced 50 public artworks all over the world. He produced them 
for charities, hospitals, children's centres, orphanages. Um, so he's really not doing this to kind of sell his work in that way. He's doing this for, for the public good, really. So his public artworks, you all have heard of all of these, I'm sure. So he did the mural in New York, Crack is Whack. Yeah, you heard of that. Yeah, I remember this. That's kind of synonymous with him, isn't it? He also did a mural celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty. And he worked on that with 900 children. I'm sure he didn't work with all of them at the same time, but just the thought of that many children is a lot. That is too many, in my opinion. (laughs) I am a childless woman, so more than... One child is too many for me. That's how you describe yourself when you meet people. I am a childless woman. <laughs> yes, that's the first thing I say before my name. Your opinion. As a childless woman, I think this. Yeah. <laughs> but the thought of 900 children is that is not, that's the stuff of nightmares for me. I'm sure it was all working with them separately, but my God, just the noise level. I just, I remember helping out. It was either one of my kids, can't remember which one offered to help out in the classroom for the afternoon. They encouraged all the parents to do that. Worst afternoon of my life. The noise of 35-year-olds. <laughs> and they're very needy. Always one wanting to go to the toilet, one wanting to draw, one wanting to talk to you. Oh, gosh. That's what I'm saying. It's not like I dislike children, everyone. Like, don't get it wrong. I think children are love. But, yeah, for me, I'm just very selfish. I'm like, I don't need someone else being needy. So no, I'm with you on that. I'm lucky now. My two are older. They're less needy, which is which is a good thing. We say that, but um, did one of them just interrupt you? No, no, that was my husband. Oh, was that Fraser? Because I didn't actually hear it because I think the microphones are so good just to let you know that it cancels out noise around you. Obviously not my dogs, as we've learned, because they shout the loudest. But I didn't actually hear. I just saw your face like whip around. No, and he's been told not to interrupt because he knows we're doing this. Still couldn't. St- he still had to come couldn't wait had to ask you oh, no, I mean, it's, it's bad really because you bought me a cup of tea oh you might be thirsty after all your talking rubbish here <laughs> like will you get out maybe it's a bigger insult that he probably overheard what we were chatting about and just thought well they're clearly not recording a podcast with this nonsense like <laughs> i can definitely go into what happened. oh no <laughs> right back to back to lovely keith uh, so, yes, we're talking. He's painted murals. So he painted uh, a mural on the western side of the Berlin Wall three years before it came down. And he's doing drawing workshops for children in schools and museums across the world. Now everyone getting involved and everyone being included to kind of experiment and learn more about art. It's just all around nice person, isn't he? Yeah, he's so in it for like the greater good. And I mean, obviously, I'm totally just making up all his thoughts and opinions. <laughs> but he, he seems to be that he he's not in it for like the kudos and uh, I'm this artist. You know, he so wants to help people. I think you're right. I, I got that impression, too, that he is all about helping everybody else and sharing his work and his talent, but he doesn't want people to pay for it. He just wants to share it and they can learn from him. And that's why I like him. But I wanted to find some, and I'm not going to tell you them all now, but some interesting facts for you that might not be included in this podcast. And I have to tell you, uh, you had just mentioned that he did some art on the Berlin Wall, didn't you? (laughs) One of the facts I saw, I think one of the um, websites has not got it quite right because they said in 1886, He graffitied on the Berlin Wall. Just made me laugh so much. I was like, oh, wow. 1886, a hundred years before he would even have been alive. So, yeah, definitely not 1886, but... Right. So, 
I'm getting used to trying to bring it back on track. I think yeah. I've got that nailed now. Maybe just say back in the room every time we're going to start again and then we'll all know. Back in the room. It will become like my catchphrase. I don't want it. <laughs> no, but it, you're almost there anyway. You'll always go, okay, so back to Keith. It's not you're letting me know. So we're back. Yep. Okay. Back to the, the subject matter. Oh, so Keith was, um, he was diagnosed with AIDS in 1988. The next year he established the Keith Haring Foundation. And its aim was to provide funding and imagery to AIDS organisations and children's programmes. Wanted to continue expanding kind of the audience for his work. And I have to say, it wasn't just um, creating awareness about AIDS. He also created awareness about drug use and apartheid. You might think because he'd been diagnosed with AIDS, that would have an effect on his work and perhaps slow him down because you know he's living with a terminal illness and he's seeing his community shrink. It must have been quite a frightening time for him. He's lost lots of his friends, but actually it had the opposite effect for him. And he just went into overdrive. He just completely threw himself into his work. I'll come in and say something. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of a podcast, but I normally tell you a few facts, debatably sometimes interesting, and then you respond. Then I, okay, I come back to you about that. It's like a two-way conversation. I got so used to butting in and not doing it that I was like, don't, don't do it, don't do it, don't say anything. My brain inside was just like, shush, shush, Jess. <laughs> and then I got it wrong, misjudged it completely there. So he was a big supporter of ACT UP which is an American organisation and it stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Started giving them money to pay for awareness raising campaigns. One of their most iconic slogans actually uh, was ignorance equals fear, silence equals death, which he illustrated. He's done the imagery for that. Now we have you equals you. Was it influenced by Keith Haring, an actor? As ever, we'll share the images on our social media alongside this podcast episode. But yeah, that's there's such famous images that he's done. Yeah, they really are. He also created a character called Debbie Dick for safe sex campaigns. Debbie Dick, oh, I like that. So he wanted to communicate messages with a sense of humour. Oh, we've had this, haven't we, at TVPS, where we use humour to kind of get around the awkwardness of those safe sex kind of conversations. And I think as well, we've seen that people close off the moment they feel that you're going to lecture them. I'm actually going to put up some examples of this because we did a Christmas campaign once and we went to bars, clubs, all sorts of different places. Gentlemen's clubs, some of them let us put them in their dinner. In the toilets, we put posters on the backs of the doors and it was all around accessing free condoms. Of course, you can get them from the clinics for free. Not everyone has time to pop down there, do they? And obviously in times of COVID, things have changed. It's not a walk-in situation anymore. Maybe not everyone can afford condoms from the supermarket or the pharmacy. So we were running an initiative where people could scan a QR code and we'd post some out. The We got a really good image of Santa, like holding his package, let's say. So for the ladies... Our strap line was, don't be a diva, protect your beaver. And then for the men, which was my my favourite, was, don't be crackers, protect your knackers. And uh, knackers means like balls in, in England. How <laughs> we have never been approached to design ad campaigns for the whole of the UK, I will never know. I don't know either, because that, genius. Golden. Absolute genius. <laughs> don't be crackers. Protect your knackers. <laughs> we should resurrect it this Christmas. Oh, we should. Yes. Let's do it. Do people still go to clubs? 
Well, but yes, of course they do. I think we can we can definitely use it online. Maybe we move to online. Oh, mm, right. Look at us doing our day jobs in the podcast. See, turned it around. Any trustees listening? That <laughs> we're like a car crash podcast thing. No, no, no. Working and recording. Yeah, yeah. Productive. That's what. Yes. Always thinking about the job. Right now we're back in the room. Come on, Keith. You used it. Yes, I love it. So two years after being diagnosed, I think Keith did something which actually I think is very, very brave for then, for the time. I think it's very brave to, to even do it now because he gave a very candid interview to Rolling Stone. So he wanted to challenge the stigma around HIV. And Kenny Scharf, who we mentioned earlier, another famous artist, remembers that at the time, no one was talking about it, especially nobody famous. The article Keith, he talks about all aspects of his life, including his HIV diagnosis, his sexuality, his fear that once people knew he had AIDS, they would stop him from working with children. Talks about being sexually active in the early 80s prior to HIV. He's really, really open about everything. And at one point, the interviewer, who I think he knew, it wasn't someone he'd never met before. I think he already knew this person. Perhaps that's why they asked these sort of questions. Interviewer talks about Rock Hudson. So he was the actor that passed away from AIDS in 1985. Um, And Rock Hudson wasn't really, well, he wasn't open about his diagnosis when he was alive. So the interviewer says, well, look, by keeping quiet about it, Rock Hudson helped perpetuate the ignorance. And Keith says, well, no, because he didn't talk about it. The media was able to perpetuate this thing that AIDS was a punishment for something he did that was bad. If anyone said that question to me, I'd have been outraged. But he's obviously like, no, don't. You're targeting the wrong person. It's the media that do this. It's not Rock Hudson. Yeah, you're focusing on the wrong thing here. Absolutely. And then the interviewer comes back and says, well, you know, he made it seem like he was ashamed of being gay. And again, Keith is saying, Look, you know, one of the most important things that being sick is not going to make me go back on anything in my life. I don't regret anything I've done. Everything's natural. And then he raises a really good point. So he talks about young people, young kids growing up, trying to figure out what their sexuality is and saying, my God, how awful is it now for someone who's young, who knows they're gay or that wants to experiment because they're looking at a sentence of death and how frightening that must be. And it's a really good point, actually. Massively. And I think that would have had such an effect on the gay community. I think so many people would have thought and felt that anyway. So it would have had an effect for so many years. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's he's thinking about this. He's just a very kind and caring person. Um, and with questions like that, which no doubt kind of might have irritated him because of, of you know, they're personally doing quite stupid questions, but there you go. And he's just dealt with them really well. He's also asked in the interview how having AIDS has changed his life. And is that, well, how does having a terminal illness affect anybody's life? No, it's not changed at all. Everything's how, how did Keith handle that question? He was just honest. He just said, look, the hardest thing is just knowing that there's so much more stuff to do. I'm a workaholic and I'm scared that one day I'll wake up and I won't be able to do it. Quite heart-wrenching, I don't, but, you know, true. That's how he felt. Again, I think we need to really highlight how amazing it is for someone to be this open in a magazine like Rolling Stone, such a high profile magazine at that point in time, because that would still be quite a candid and open and raw interview now, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And he, we're talking kind of the late 80s. So unheard of for people to speak this candidly about living with HIV. And the article, I mean, some of his friends and acquaintances, especially in the celebrity world, they shunned him after this. Didn't want to be associated with him at all. 
that he didn't let that stop him. You know, he's in his late twenties, very early thirties. So, you know, just didn't want to slow down. Didn't slow down his pace of life. Didn't slow down his pace of work. Even when people are uh, not wishing to kind of engage with him anymore, it's just like, I don't care. I'm just going to carry on working. He sounds so amazing. I, I, I so know what you mean now at the start when you said, oh, he's really inspirational. And I sort of, you know, poked a bit of fun at you saying he isn't on all the people. But uh, no, I do understand what, what you meant now, though. I can see he's just, I feel warm just talking about him. Like, what a guy. I know. And he's young. He's in his 20s. And he's so he has a very mature attitude to all of this and a very giving nature. You would think or you might expect, given that he's been diagnosed with AIDS, that he's just going to kind of switch it off and just but I'm not doing any more for anybody. But no, he does the opposite. That's quite incredible, I think. Massively. And the yeah, the kindness just shines through. Definitely. So in February 1990, at the age of 31, Keith passed away from uh, AIDS related complications. His memorial service, which was held later that year, was attended by over a thousand people. And it's estimated that he produced over 10,000 pieces of artwork during his lifetime. Now, remember, his career only spanned about 10 years. Wow. And over those 10 years, he's featured in over 100 solo and group exhibitions. I mean, he's worked with people like Madonna, Grace Jones, Yoko Ono. He's quite the artist. Um, and his work's still shown today in museums and yeah, he's still just as famous now. Okay, so the final thing to do is to look at why he is heroic. Obviously, he made his art accessible for everyone. That's quite heroic in itself. And he shared his talent with everybody. And his art's iconic. We know this. And his career was short-lived. But for me, he's heroic because of his activism and his energy. And despite being diagnosed himself, he's determined to continue to raise awareness and be open about his diagnosis. And that actually is what makes him more heroic for me. If there's such a, an expression. The heroicist. Yes, the most heroic. Yes, for the people. Because he understood the importance of tackling stigma. He's using his art to start conversations around safe sex, um, condom use, sexuality. He's laying himself bare. That's so, you don't get many celebrities who do that now let alone back then. And at that time, especially if you had HIV, people just weren't talking about it. So imagine how many people he must have helped, people who also had HIV or AIDS, that would have been comforted by the fact that this famous artist is going through and articulating exactly what they're going through too. That's what makes him heroic for me. I, I couldn't agree more. I still can't get over the Rolling Stone article. I'm actually going to go and read that. Oh, you should. Well, I'm going to send you over the links. And yeah. Amazing job, as always. I really love him. I do. An amazing, amazing guy. As I said, I only knew the name of who we were going to do. So I wanted to bring something to you. Some little facts that you might not have known. So I don't have many. He is a Guinness World, a Guinness Book World Record holder. Well, to be more specific... The facts get better, by the way, as we go. To be more specific, it's the biggest jigsaw puzzle in the world features Keith Haring's paintings. And according to the Guinness World Book of... Why can't I say it? (laughs) Guinness Book of World Records, the 32,000-piece puzzle consists of 32 of Keith Haring's art pieces arranged over an area of 16 by 6 feet 
and it's called Double Retrospective. Really? Honestly. Can you imagine doing a jigsaw puzzle? That's that's a rainy afternoon field, isn't it? (laughs) Isn't it just? Uh, I've got more. Keith Haring, actually, you know, you had mentioned his mentor was Andy Warhol. Oh, yes. I know. What an amazing pair they would have been. I know. So Keith Haring actually took Andy Warhol to Madonna's wedding to Sean Penn as his plus one. Really? Yeah. I mean, Sean Penn, one of my favourite people. Love Sean Penn. Me too. Mm. I don't know the name of the film, but there's a film he's in that is just amazing. It's based on a true story. What's it called? With the dad shooting people. (laughs) Wait, what? I feel like, right, I need you to understand that what you said was that film that Sean Penn is in that's a true story, which one is it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, he did the one with Susan Sarandon, didn't he? No, this is the one that um, Madonna did the soundtrack for it. What was it called? It's one. Of- oh, who's that girl? No. What, was he not in? Oh, it was really famous. I, I have no idea. I mean, he was in Milk obviously about Harvey Milk. No, it wasn't that. Sarah is furiously Googling now. Right. I'm going to find the name of it. So <laughs> I'll give you my last fact. At Close Range. Oh, I've never seen it. What's what? I'm so proud that I have. It's quite gritty for me. What's the premise? I did not know it's set in Pennsylvania. <gasps> oh, my God. <sighs> my mind's exploding. Oh, Our podcast has gone full circle back to the beginning. It has got sean penn in it it's got chris penn his brother in it as well it's all very dark and sons get dragged into it oh why oh, bother watching these gritty films I'm gonna have to go and watch it now i, I thought you'd be impressed i'd be like oh wow so well done you've moved on from bridget jones but sadly not well but i do like that we've now weirdly gone full circle with Pennsylvania. Yes. Right, my last fact, according to yoko ono keith harring posthumously told her to take his ashes to Paris. Posthumously or posthumously. I love how you give me the best facts and I'm like, can I, can I just check your grammar there? I don't know. How do you say that? Why is my mum going, what's happening? Goodness me. Um, I don't know. How would I say it? Say it again, you do it. Posthumously. Posthumously. Or posthumously. Hum- no, it's not humorous. Post- After he had died. Yeah. He took his ashes to Paris. Yeah, so she said, I quote, this is her speaking. You know, I have a psychic side. So ghosts and spirits whisper to me. At the hill, they were giving out parts of the bones to people. And I received a toe. I put it in my pocket and thought, what am I going to do with it? Suddenly, Keith whispered, keep it, hold it. I'll tell you what to do. So I said, okay. Then I went home and Keith said he'd like me to take it to Paris and put it in an obelisk. And I did. End they quote. They were giving out his bones. I mean, I haven't looked into it further, but perhaps I need to. But she got a toe <laughs> and then took it to Paris. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you like that? Is that a good fact? I want that at my uh, funeral. I want bits of me to be given out. To oh, my... which body part can I have? Oh, you can have a finger. Oh, she's swearing at me. How rude. Okay. And where would you like it to go? Oh, um... Pennsylvania, New England. Yes, yes. Somewhere, well, we've we've got a strong affiliation with Pennsylvania. That's definitely where I'd like to have that finger take. Yeah, again, not New, not New England though. It's not New England. No, no, not New England. That's nothing to do with today's podcast. No. Gosh, I mean, it's been exhausting this time, hasn't it? <laughs> I know, hasn't it? Yes. 
I mean, an amazing subject matter. And you'd think with such awesome subject matter, it would we'd, we'd just be sailing. But no. Yes, I had thought it would be seamless and professional. Never. Maybe that's what we'll aim for next time. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, we'll aim for it, but I can't, I feel like I can't guarantee that will happen. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I'll try and bring you some more interesting facts. Oh, yes. Oh, I'll let you know afterwards who we're doing next time. They yeah. definitely be interesting facts for that person. Okay. Okay. I cannot wait. Right. Amazing episode. Lovely to see you. I'm going to go off and nurse my COVID self back to health. Um, and I will see you for the next one. Thank you for listening to HIV Hope and Charity. If you'd like to know more about the work that we do, visit tvps.org.uk. And please like, subscribe and rate the podcast if you enjoyed it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.